All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this tremendous opportunity, this privilege, this honor of gathering together to fellowship in your Son's good name, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is on a Sunday morning like this, a morning that you've ordained from eternity past for the ears, the minds, the hearts, and the souls of those hearing my voice, Father. Thank you for using this pathetic, weak vessel to bring glory to you, Father. We know that it's the Spirit speaking to us now. We just pray that our hearts be humbled and remain open for the remainder of this message and then henceforth moving forward in our own lives. Father, we pray for those that are ill and can't be with us this morning. Members of this congregation, we long to spend time with them so that we might encourage each other as long as it's called today. Father, we pray for those that are still lost in this world. We pray that we might evangelize them somehow, that you bring them low, that they are humbled to the point of repentance before it's too late. Father, we're most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a reality for all of us here to enjoy. May we never become familiar with him or the work he's done for us. We just pray for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, deceitfulness of sin, part 20. I want to begin with a passage up here on the board. Genesis 8.21, part B. I was reading um, over a coffee this morning, uh, early this morning, and this came out. And it just struck me. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And the word imagination is the, one, is the word that stuck out to me. It's this Holy Scripture. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And if you think about, if you look around in America, especially we're, like, you know, we're supposed to be the, the most industrious, the most entrepreneurial, the most creative in many ways country on the planet, which means we have a whole lot of imagination. And um, unfortunately, it's evil. Most things that are done um, on this earth now are for evil purposes, to move people away from and further from the truth. We invent ways to distract ourselves. And then we imagine that God's okay with it. That's the average Christian. Let me invent new ways to distract myself, and then let me imagine, because the powers of imagination are fierce, let me, and evil, let me imagine that God, the holy God of the universe, says, okay. That's the indictment on man. And so it just struck me. Such a simple statement. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's an inescapable reality, in other words. Here's a couple of more quotes uh, from Pink's Total Depravity of Man. I'm still sort of reading that really slow, just sort of sipping it. And um, the nice thing about my reading that book is everything so far has just been an affirmation. It's not like I'm looking to it for a new counsel or anything like that. It's just really nice as a reader to, to know that even years ago, someone that was earnest in their 
um, own spiritual gift, saw things the exact same way. It's almost like every time I send a quote out to somebody, they're like, man, that sounds just like what is coming from the pulpit. I'm like, no kidding, right? So it's, it's really exciting. So this is why I share it, not because I think, you know, he's, he's anything more special than I am or any other pastor that's ever done his job. It's just really nice to hear, and sometimes you like hearing other, other people's words just for the sake of affirmation. So I'll share this with you. Um, quote, while we do not consider that sin is a substance or a material thing, we are sure that it is very much more than a mere abstraction or non-entity. Man's very nature is corrupted. The virus of evil is in his blood. While there is privation in sin, a nonconformity to God's law, there is also a real positive potency in it to mischief. Sin is a power as holiness is a power. Sin is a power as holiness is power, but a power working to disorder and death. It has been said that by some... Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that there. And then there's another quote here. Uh, I sent this out, this, I think it was last night, this morning, to just a couple of folks on the leadership team. Um, it goes this way. And this is a very solemn thought. Asylums, prisons, and cemeteries are depressing sights, yet they are painful facts of human history. Refusal to consider fallen man's condition helps no one. Until we are brought to realize this truth, we shall never despair of self and look away to another. This solemn side of the picture is indeed dark, yet it is the necessary background to redemption. Does that not sound like everything we've been studying from the Gospel Reload? Is that not the recurring theme in our studies over and over and over and over again that stands contrary in complete contradiction to the watered-down Gospel that's out there today, probably being peddled from God knows how many Christian pulpits this morning as I speak? Does that not sound exactly what we've been being taught exactly that's the whole point it's a solemn dark truth but yet it's necessary to bring somebody low so that they get to that point of humility where they actually seek a savior how often that's being um, preached this morning I don't know it scares me to think about how rare it might actually be Again, those were last-minute ads from my early morning reading uh, this morning. Uh, on with the message now. This was a summary statement that came out. We're on part 20 now, and after uh, going over uh, Thursday's lesson, uh, which Scott uh, taught because Tuesday was canceled, um, this just occurred to me as well. The truth is the easiest of all things to understand. Just put that into perspective. The truth. That's why if, if you just function in truth and integrity in your life, your life is pretty seamless. It's, you'll get attacked from without, but in terms of your, stability, your level of stability, your lack of anxiousness or worry or concern about 
white noise. Things that we've invented, imagined to distract ourselves. It's gone. The truth, the truth as, an, as a thing is the easiest of all things to understand. It's only when we allow sin to complicate our understanding that things become less easy, more complex, more confounding, more agitating, etc., etc. It's only when we allow sin to complicate things. Does, does all the, the, the badness come on the scene? Because the truth is, right here, the truth is the easiest of all things to understand. God did not make it complicated. We complicate things. And when we do that to ourselves, we end up suffering. Isn't this all the Spirit's been trying to convey to us as of late? That's it. The deceitfulness of sin makes things complicated. He's trying to deliver you. It's like shedding a coat. I've said this many times. It feels like from this pulpit after a decade or so now, it feels like we've done a lot more shedding and reorganizing than actually gaining new insights. Most of you have read your Bibles cover to cover, I'm assuming, at least most of it. Most of you have been in the Word of God for a long time. It's not like you don't have the correct pieces or you haven't seen the Scripture. It's that you had a lot of things to shed, right? And a lot of reorganizing to do to get things proper so that things are really, really simple. It's only when we add things that it gets complicated. And that's all the Spirit's been saying. One of the things we notice if we read, say, Hebrews 11, the so-called Hall of Fame of Faith, is that each person mentioned held fast to the point on the board. If you read between the lines, if you look at their personalities, their character, the, the nature of how they went about doing whatever it was they were commented on, that's what, that's what stands out. That they understood that the truth is the easiest thing to understand. That, that you have laser-like focus if you just stay with the truth. That you're not distracted. That your life's not overly complicated. As a matter of fact, it's just simple. <laughs> and because it's simple, you're delivered from all the complexities and the anxieties and the worries that come along with a complicated, sinful lifestyle. That's all the Spirit's been saying. You know, uh, DJ often paraphrases the whole thing. He's like, I'm just simplifying my life. He's not the only one that said that to me. I'm just simplifying. Good. I'm like, awesome. That's perfect. Because the truth is, it should be simple. The truth is, the things we invent, the things we jam into our lives, we shoehorn things. I'm just as guilty as the next person. We shoehorn things into our lives, our already somewhat busy lives, our really busy lives. And then we wonder why we're miserable. So the truth is the easiest of all things to understand. For example, as we noted on Thursday, King David saw things quite simply. And I repeat, he was a king. King David saw things quite simply. He was a king. Can any of us even imagine what kind of responsibility was thrust upon his shoulders? Remember, he was the unassuming guy. He was the one who said, hey, look, I'm not looking for this. And God says, I'm going to make you king. Okay, your will be done. 
Can you even imagine what kind of responsibility is thrust upon a king that, like David that actually cares about his subjects, that's actually humble before God? Imagine the responsibility he had. Or how about the level of complexity in his life, given all the human fleshes he was trying to manage? Or how about all the temptations? Say Bathsheba, for example. If you're a king, all of a sudden you have the greatest aphrodisiac of all. Imagine the temptations. One of the greatest things about David was that he kept responses of his decisions and the things he allowed into his life very simple. That's the beauty of it. So here he is, a king, with all this stuff, chaos from without. And he kept things very simple, even when he messed up. Go to Psalms 51.5, Psalms 51.5. So keep that point on the board in mind. One of the great lessons we can learn from King David is that he just kept things simple. It's not that the day-to-day operations or administration of a kingdom weren't complicated. That's more of a technical thing, though. We're talking about it at a spiritual level. He kept things very simple. The waters didn't get super muddy. Uh, Psalm 51.1. Some of you might have that at work. You might have a job. Like, I was an engineer for years. That job's technical. It's, it's complicated. It's complex. That should have no bearing whatsoever on my spiritual life. I should be able to write a little code or do whatever I did back in the day and, be, and, and go home and be totally fine. If I start tying my self-esteem to those things, now it becomes a problem. All of a sudden, the lines get blurred. That's when things get complicated. So I'm not talking that way. I'm talking about, you know, David's life was used just like, la, 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 la. It's easy being a king. No. There's a technical competency and a complexity that's involved, but that's not what's being talked about here. So Psalm 51.5, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your greatness, or to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see his dialogue here. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know, you see what he said? I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's the thing about David. He was honest. He was open. He said, I know who I am. This is a very simple formula. (laughs) I sin. And what does he say? Look at the direct approach to the Lord. Verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Up here on the board, some clarity, some insight, some perspective on that phrase against you you alone. David's humility oozed simplicity. David's humility oozed simplicity. He didn't try to dodge the truth about himself. He owned it, confessed it, repented from it to God's glory. And that's why we have Acts 13.22. David's humility oozed simplicity. He didn't try to dodge the truth about himself. He owned it, confessed it, repented from it to God's glory. This is why we have Acts 13.22, part B. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now that's one heck of an epitaph. If you had to have something named about you in the Bible, a man after God's heart, are you serious? Yeah. 
Because that's all God really wants. Isn't that what we're learning? He just wants us to come to, to, to him in humility and say, yep, here I am. <laughs> uh, I accept who I am. You already knew this. But now I kind of accept it. And from that point on, he says, that's very good. Now you're starting to think the way I think. And from that point, I can deliver you. If you keep playing your little games and your charades, I can't do anything. You keep frustrating what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to sanctify you. So the starting point is the way David started, which was always humility. Look at verse 4 again. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. He understood this, brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Uh, we know that we're born in sin. He knew this. Behold, you desire truth, though. You desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so what you see is a humble heart. And he just said, I just want the truth. That was the great thing about David. I just want the truth. I love how the Spirit said it for us on Thursday up here on the board. David's humility, he reckoned himself as accountable to God's amazing grace, as if to say, it's right to be thankful. He reckoned himself as accountable to God's amazing grace. That's something we can all learn from. Are you accountable to God's grace? Do you, in other words, forever appreciate everything he's done for you? Or are you like the typical, you know, brat? You know, the Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? Is that you? I mean, have you get caught? I get caught up in that sometimes. You know, stop playing the violin. It's, it's unbelievably grotesque. Sit there and say, what? you have such a nerve, man to complain about anything. And you all could say the same thing in your own lives. David said, it's right to be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, of course. Romans 6, 11, we'll see a bigger passage there. But let me give you this in the Amplified. This was David's heart. Rejoice always and delight in your faith. Be unceasing and persistent in prayer. In every situation, no matter what the circumstances, be thankful and continually give thanks to God, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do you understand? I can't emphasize that last phrase enough. Continually give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. See, most people, idiots think God is this like greedy, selfish, just keep praising, and there's truth to this, but just keep praising it only for my sake. No, He loves you, and He knows what's best for you. And he knows that if, you're, if you abide in gratitude, you benefit. Your life is blessed. That's why it's his will for you to abide in gratitude. Is that simple or difficult? It's actually very simple. See, sin always comes on the scene like the serpent. Psst, you have other options. As soon as you think you have other options, what all of a sudden happens? What was nice, placid, you're out in the boat, la, 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 la. The sun's on your face. You know, it's 85 degrees. You got most of you probably K-Love on a little speaker in the back over there. You know, la, 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 la. It could be 86. 
That's right. Why isn't it 86? I could lather up a little bit more over here, get a better tan. You are totally fine. Things, life was simple, easy, peaceful. I sound like an Eagle song, right? Easy feeling. Just kind of, right? You know what I'm saying? Until options. Stop entertaining options. Stop entertaining options. I'm telling you right now, that's where your misery is. Because Satan, the kingdom of darkness, America, whispers options all day long. All day long. Chris, you ever get any uh, Rogaine uh, email? He's like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean? This is news, right? I get them all the time. I don't even know how they know, right? I'm like, hey, settle down. But what if I was like, all of a sudden, I'm like, hey, yeah, you know what? I could spruce up a little bit and get a little extra curly cues. Let me get some Rogaine. Let me work a few extra hours on the side and say, to hell with you guys. I won't work as hard on the, ne- whatever. You know what I'm saying. Now I have options. I have options. God forgot about you. You obviously need to, to sort of add and provide a little bit extra for yourself on top of what God's done for you. Right? Stop it. Stop listening to the whispers of the world. Turn the TV off. I had some good advice this week. Turn the TV off. Turn the radio on instead. Turn the TV off. Turn Caleb on. Something's going to play something that's edifying for your soul, not like Joan Jett and the Blackhots. Oh, I'm the only one. You don't love rock and roll? Do you get what I'm getting at? Options. Whispering in your ears. Always. Always, always options. You know what you don't have? As soon as I say that, if I say, you know what you have, people are like, oh, here we go. If I say, you know what you don't have, everybody's like, what? What? What do you know that I don't know? What do I want that I don't know I want yet? No, for right. Isn't it true? If I say that to you, you know what you have? You look, here we go. We're going to get a lecture. If I say, you know what you don't have? So you'll listen to the serpent before you listen to the spirit. It's unbelievable. Let's go to the other uh, verse now. Go to Romans 6, 8, though. Go to Romans 6, 8. Read a little bit more for the sake of context and amplification. Romans 6, 8. Romans 6, verse 8. Eight. And remember, this is on the, uh, the coattails of David saying, basically, it's right to be thankful. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we, have, uh, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin for one, once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive 
to God in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing grace right there. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Stop listening to the whispers, my friends, the options. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Isn't that what David said? Hey, listen, I don't deserve this, but this is amazing. It's good to be. It's right to be uh, grateful. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Again, up here on the board, David's humility is our example. He reckoned himself as accountable to God's amazing grace, as if to say it's right to be thankful every single day, for you have been purchased. And that was not a necessary act. It was a gracious, a gracious act on your behalf. Do you deserve it? No. Should we treat the Lord the way most, quote, Christians treat him now? Like some kind of uh, rebound guy? Some kind of guy that we should just treat as like a rag that we pull out and, you know, wipe the drool off our face when we need it? Do we blow our snot into? I mean, we might as well say that because that's exactly what most Christians do. Christ isn't revered. He's not even sovereign in their lives. He's like some kind of begging, pathetic, weak, emaciated, emasculated dude, like rebound. I don't know. what. It's horrible the way the average Christian even, never mind an unbeliever, treats. Sometimes I would argue that unbelievers treat Christ better than professing Christians do. At least they're honest. We also looked at Joseph on Thursday, and please do not forget why we are looking at these individuals in a series titled The Deceitfulness of Sin. What we are realizing is that the so-called greats, and I always use that word lightly, but you know what I mean, the so-called greats in the Bible were able to maintain a very simple, freeing perspective. They were all able to keep the Lord God as their centerpiece no matter what. And they were able to keep sin in its proper place. Namely, as any offense to God, anything against His will. See, a lot of people don't like that. They don't like that. They just want me to come up here and give them a list of things not to do and a list of things to do. And I can get fancy and calm, you know, sins of omission and sins of commission and all these kind of fancy things and you know we get all theological and it's all just a bunch of bunk because all we're doing is building up a couple of lists that miss the main point that's the beauty of religion because that's the imagination of man i can go on and on and on i can even create new words for you if, I, if you want some of you've been down that road before and uh, gro grossed out by it now I can give you multisyllabic words. I got a pretty good vocabulary. Matter of fact, I took Latin in high school and I took Spanish after that. Maybe I'll just start whacking things together and really dazzle you. And use like Latin roots and, and suffixes and all that kind of stuff. And you'll be like, oh my God, this guy's a genius. I'm following him. Or I can do what I'm supposed to do and say, this is actually pretty simple. How about we shed a bunch of this garbage off of ourselves? all the imaginations of the human flesh. 
all the details of our lives that have got us in bondage. How about we stop seeking for things that are against His will? That's when we put sin in its proper place. Joseph's attitude, like David's, uh, was just like David's. So let's look at the full account. Go to Genesis 39, verse 1. I'm just going to read this with you because it's so fantastic. I know we had a part of it on Thursday. I'm just going to read this whole thing with you because it's just so fantastic. And he may have me just shut my mouth and that will be the end of it. I don't know. Genesis 39.1 I want you to think of Joseph as having a very simple attitude about things. How God was the centerpiece. Doesn't mean he didn't fail. But he's a perfect example of passing a test under duress. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. So that's very important. The Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and made him, he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It's a lot of responsibility, folks. It isn't like someone says, hey, you're in charge of the, you know, the bathrooms at North Christian Church. This is a lot of responsibility, and I'm not belittling that. I'm just saying there's a lot of responsibility here. And a lot of testing comes with uh, responsibility. The higher up the you know, leadership chain you go, the, the more temptation there is in certain ways. And like I said, there's a certain aphrodisiac of being in positions of power. Men. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessings... Blessing was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Oh, God, right? Not only is he in a place of a position of uh, increasing power, he's also handsome. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. Now, this is wrong. And she said, lie with me. That means sleep with me. Have sex with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you. Sounds almost like the garden, doesn't it? Hmm. Because you are his wife, how then, this is the key, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? You see his attitude? It's the same as David's against you and you alone I sin. This isn't about her. It's not about adultery with her or his master. This is about the Lord. There's a, a, a sovereign pact between this person who the Lord keeps blessing out uh, and the Lord himself. That's the bind. That's the, that's the bond, if you would. So the woman is trying to get him to break that bind. But see, Joseph's 
keeps it simple. It says, it's not going to happen because I care about the Lord. It doesn't even say, I mean, he could have been attracted. Who knows what this woman looked like? She could have been, you know, probably she was attractive given the position of the master. Who knows? But he saw beyond all that. Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her. So this is like an ongoing thing. You see how temptation is, right? To lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. He's like, i got to get out of here. This now sounds like my dating series. Get out of there. If you're in the wrong place, you shouldn't be in a place alone with somebody who's like that. Get the hell out of there. Seriously. Guys, ladies, whatever the situation is, get out of there. If you leave a garment behind, they lie about you, what are you going to do? You end up like one of these sports athletes who get accused of raping every, every other woman they've ever met. I'm not saying it's true or it's not true. I'm just saying likelihood is not everyone was raped. But they're in a position of power. They leave something behind. Next thing you know, they're on the block. Get out of there. Avoid this situation completely. This is wisdom, my friends. Seriously. It's Joseph's like, I'm just going to get out of here. <laughs> so here's where things get interesting, though, for righteous believers in this world. As I've been teaching, sin doesn't just leave us alone. Oh, no. Sin's not, you know, oh, okay. All right, we'll have it. Your no, 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 no. Look what happens. Verse 13. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew. Now she's getting, like, personal about this stuff, right? To us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. What a liar. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So... Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail. Oh, that's nice. So he does nothing and he's in jail. The place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. Some of you might be able to relate, for you have been persecuted for doing what is righteous. And there's all different kinds of, you know, obviously literal and figurative prisons. Some of you are in some kind of, who knows what, social prison, because you're doing what's right and you refuse the temptation. Verse 29, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. So Joseph just is, you know, I'm just focused on the Lord. I'm resilient. The Lord makes me resilient. Look what's going on here. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Joseph's attitude was just like David's in the sense that he knew when he was being tempted and whose glory would suffer had he taken the bait. He said, I'm just going to keep it simple. I could complicate this thing or I could make it, keep it simple. 
If I keep it simple, what's the Lord's will? That's it. Is it righteous for me to take the bait? End of story. If the answer is no, then that's it. And some of you need to learn that lesson. If what you're doing does not bring glory to God, say no. That's it. Don't make excuses. Don't say, don't make excuses. Try to justify it. Just say no. I know in my heart, God the Holy Spirit is, is convicting me in this moment. This is wrong. And I know it's wrong. And I know it's a gray area. But I know where my evil heart is. The one that I had since I was a child. You know, that, that thing is percolating up again. The flesh. I know it's wrong. If you stick with that, your life is going to stay simple. And all these pathetic consequences that you're dealing with, even today, even now, will be gone. Won't be added to. So Joseph's was like David in the sense that he knew when he was being tempted and whose glory would suffer if they take the bait. I mean, it's possible that Joseph could have been tempted to say, you know, like some people do, well, my master won't know, so I'll just go with the, you know, consenting adults argument and lie with his wife. In essence, Joseph could have questioned. You see, all of a sudden, hey, I have options. Nobody will be the wiser. I have options. Next thing you know, you have options. Exercising options that way is essentially the same thing as questioning God's grace in those moments. What, he's not enough? Joseph, now you need your master's wife? But she's, no, stop it. Who cares how aggressive she is? Is that going to bring glory to me? Uh, duh. But it's a real tempting option, isn't it? And it really comes down to a person questioning God's grace. But he didn't. And what we see play out is something we see in the New Testament even. Go to 1 Peter 3.10. 1 Peter 3, verse 10. Don't take the bait. 1 Peter 3.10. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Are you honoring God or not? And you know when you're doing that thing. So cut it out. Right? Some of you are like, what? What, what do you mean? <laughs> you know exactly when you're doing that thing. So stop. That's what the Spirit's basically saying. Keep it simple. For that is God's will for your sake. In Christ, First Peter 3.10, For the one who desires life to love and see God uh, good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Think about that. Even Joseph, that was the example, right? I'm going to throw you in prison. Next thing you know, he's prospering again. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Isn't that what we just saw with Potiphar's wife? She tried to, you know, flex and, and you know, Coerce and this kind of a thing. She kept on him, kept on him. 
and then he ended up in jail. So what? If you suffer for doing what's right and you end up in prison even, so be it. That's the true Christian way. Verse 15, But sanctify Christ, set him apart as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience. You got that? Keep a good conscience. Ephesians uh, 5.18 says what? Don't be dissipated. Why? Because you lose your good conscience. Why don't why don't why not get why not drink? Because you lose that right there. Because your inhibitions go out the window. And your good conscience. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you actually do it on purpose. I'm gonna have a wild night tonight. I think I'm gonna drink up a little bit so I can numb my good conscience. I'm gonna make a few decisions that are despicable and grotesque. But I don't care about tomorrow. And I don't care about my Lord. He's not sanctified in my heart right now. Matter of fact, I've kicked him way over there. I've thrown him over there like a dirty rag. And I'm going to start, you know, boozing it up a little bit. Having, you know, just just a couple. You know, I've ever seen that meme. I'm only having one and the beer mug is like this big. And he's like this. And that's what he tells his wife or whoever the heck it's meant for. And you ladies, you're not getting away with your little wine flutes. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you stick your pinky out doesn't mean it's not three times the alcohol content in that little red swirly thing. Mm-hmm. It was the wife that went after Joseph. Ladies. Oh. Someone get really excited. <laughs> Sorry. Did you guys hear that back there? That's right. Stand up. Take a bow. Come on. Keep a good conscience. Stand up. I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Verse 16. Keep a good conscience. That's really important. So that in the thing in which you are slandered. In other words, don't give them... I mean... If you don't keep a good conscience, someone says, hey, you did that thing last night. Oh, yeah. And your eyes go like this. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Now they can slander you. Now they have fodder, if you would. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Integrity always wins. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. This is what Joseph realized in his episode with his master's wife, who, in all fairness to her, now I know I just came down hard on this woman. I don't know her, and I've taught you many times in the past, like Job's wife, we don't know her. We can't just all of a sudden say she's a complete, you know, animal. In all fairness to her, she was obviously weak and overcome with sin. Side note. Remember, there are always two sides, two fleshes, two sets of temptations to every story. Always remember that. The truth is, we are all villains. 
We're all villains. It was, it was the wife this time. Next time it was Joseph. Time after that it was somebody else. We all sin. We're all villains. There's always two sides. Always. But we love to demonize others whenever possible. The truth is that we're all guilty before God, which is why we don't judge others. And we focus on His grace toward us as individuals. So I hope you didn't make that mistake that a lot of people do when they get convicted. They'd say, oh, I'm not feeling good right now. Oh, that woman was a witch. So are you. If you even had one thought like that woman, so are you. So says Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3, 17. Again, for it is better if God should will it so that you shall suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. From Thursday's message up here on the board, the serpentine pattern. This is what I love about going back to the garden. Sin at the core wants us to question God. That's what happened in the garden. Our deliverance is tied to our, that's supposed to be to our, I don't know how it came up, tour. It's supposed to be to our, just contracted it. I'm so efficient. Is tied to our persistence in counting our true blessings. That's, what I, that's been the theme this morning, hasn't it? Options. Whispers. If you're too busy counting your blessings, you could care less about options. That was David. I have this amazing fellowship with my Lord. And who knows, maybe she was a hottie. I'm going to take a pass on this, this woman because it's wrong. I'm going to take a pass because it's wrong. I'm so focused on my Lord and counting that as a blessing in my life that I'm not, I don't have time to introduce distractions into my life. I don't have time to introduce sin and all its fruit in my life. You know what kind of seed that would have planted in his, in his soul? Did he have to deal with for some time? Maybe for the rest of his life? If, if Satan was able to plant that seed in Joseph's soul, he said, no, get that out of here. Get that out of here. I don't want that seed in my life. I don't even want it in my head. La, 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 right? Stop whispering things to me. But that's what sin does, and it's relentless. It's relentless. We just saw that in that example. She never gave up for a long time. Our deliverance depends on counting our blessings. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What options then? What options are we talking about then? If you've already got every spiritual blessing that you need, what are the options? As Scott taught on Thursday, the fact is what you have right now, where you're at in your life, is perfect for you from God right now. You have to think that way too 
where you're at right now in your life. Now, I'm not going to say, and I'm going to explain this in a moment because it kind of gets a little dicey, but where you're at in your life right now, what he's trying to do from this day on doesn't mean he's satisfied with how you got there. He tried to get you to go some other direction, but you're here now. From this time, from now on, he still wants what's best for you. He still wants you to deliver to deliver you from this new place where you're at. And so you have to think about that, that way. So as a side note, you notice I didn't say perfect. I said perfect for you right now because there's a difference. Some of you are like, but it's not perfect. You know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I'm not married and I don't have two and a half kids and I don't have the little house. I don't have like no finance, you know, and I don't have this, I don't have the perfect little so-called Christian life. Whatever the heck that is, it's always a perversion anyways. It's, you know, that, that image that you have, you know, remember imaginations? That image you have of the perfect life. Throw it out. It's what's perfect for you right now. You might say, I blew it. Man, I blew it. Son of a gun. I blew it. I married this jackass. I blew it. You can't think that way. You cannot think that way. That's bondage. And Satan and sin want you to think that way. Want you to think it's a lost cause. You cannot think that way. So throw that idea of the perfect life out the window. What's perfect is God's ability to deliver you from here on out. And that perfect now moment is on a continuum. Because tomorrow it's going to be another perfect now. Because God knows you could go out today, do something ridiculously stupid, and instead of being here, now you're over here. You get what I'm saying? But from that moment on, God says, okay, we'll work from here on then. So it's not perfect the way most count perfect. It's perfect for you right now. And there's a difference. You may say, but I'm where I'm at because I keep messing up. And while that may be true, the reality is that you can't change yesterday. There's a pretty weak analogy, so forgive me, but whatever. You fall asleep at the wheel of a sailboat and end up 50 miles off course in the deep ocean where the sea is taking its toll on you. You know, you're supposed to be in the harbor. Want to hear a funny story? There's a funny story. It's a young kid I used to work with. He says, I learned how to sail a boat. Takes me out to Fall River Harbor near the, the battleships, right? I didn't know this. He'd been drinking. He was like 16, right? He's a, we go out in the middle of the harbor. He don't know how to get back. I had to sail his back. I don't know how to sail. I'm like, how's this work again? The boom's like swinging across us. He's like, ah. I'm like, what are you doing? You freak me out. Are you drunk? I don't know why I told that story. <laughs> it reminded me of it. I'm out in the middle of the harbor over there, right? With speedboats going by, and it's like, when it's like a little dinghy sailboat type thing. And the guy's supposed to be taking us back. I'm like, dude, you're going to take us back in? He's like, ah. I'm like, why don't you just lay down and hang your head over the side of the boat? Are you ever in a perfect place? Not really. Not if you apply what your imagination thought perfect was, say, even 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Are you ever in a perfect place? The answer is no, not really. But God is able to deliver you 
perfectly from whatever it is you're facing. That's how you live. You live in the now. You may not be in a, quote, perfect place, but God is able to deliver you perfectly from whatever it is you're facing, wherever you're at. As the old saying that my sister, I wish she was here, my sister Kathy once sent me, goes up here on the board, sometimes the Lord calms the storm, sometimes he calms the sailor. Sometimes he calms the storm, sometimes he calms the sailor. Up here on the board, abiding in gratitude can save us from so many deceptions and heartaches. I guess when you're getting thrown around a sailboat and you're still alive and you know you're saved, well, those are two good things. Sin lies to you and says, you know, if God loves you, he'll calm the storm every time. You must be doing something wrong. Because he's not, you know, he's not being like the awful enabler type parent that, you know, extends the, the rope back out and says, all right, pull it back in. He says, no, how about you learn how to sail back in? How about that? I'm not going to let you die, but it's going to be rough and tumultuous out there. And that's where you're, I mean, you're the one who sailed out there, right? With a drunk kid, right? You were the idiot. Guilty as charged. You're the one who made the decisions, right? Guilty as charged. So God says, okay then. We can agree upon that. I'm going to leave the storm. I'm going to leave you in the storm you've created. But I'm going to do something better. I'm going to deliver you. Sin says no. Sin says if God loves you, he'll calm the storm every time. That's, a, that's, a, that's just not true. It's why I wrote the recent blog titled, The Things We Pray For. We all too often pray for relief rather than deliverance. We say, Lord, stop the storm. He says, no. I'll deliver you from your fear of it, the situation. I'll deliver you from it. But that doesn't require me stopping the 10-foot waves. You know, the ones you sailed directly into knowingly. You know, when you got, you know, with your little flute glass when you pinky. Nobody? All the ladies like, I don't know what you're talking about. I drink my wine out of a mug. <laughs> Dixie cups are nothing. Figure it comes out of a box, I might as well stay in some wax. Somebody's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I spent like $30 on my wine. $40, I go right to the vineyards. Well, la-di-da. We all too often pray for relief rather than deliverance. Sin tells us this is correct thinking, but it really isn't. The truth is that we reap what we sow. And oftentimes we find ourselves out on an ocean of chaos, disarray, and dysfunction. And God says, stay there for a while, while I work something out in you that's good, even though you've sown evil. Because it's from here on out, I can perfectly deliver you. If you keep doing this dysfunction junction, you're going to stay there forever. But I can take you back to, to port. 
So from here on out, we can, we can get this thing done. This is correct thinking, my friends. Therefore, it's something sin despises. This takes us back to where we've, and I'm not going to close it, darn it, I'm not going to do it. This literally takes us back to where we've closed every message in the last two weeks. The simple definition of sin. Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. That's all you have to know. That's all you really have to know. Does God want me doing this thing or not? Does God want me taking, you know, taking a little trip out into the out of the bay with a drunk kid? Probably not. Does God want you intoxicated with anything in the world, drugs or otherwise? No way. Because that only complicates things. See, everybody likes to, I only use booze because everybody laughs about it and most of you can relate to it. It's not the only intoxication. Arguably, it's not even the worst one. I'm not talking about drugs. I'm talking about lust. I'm talking about you being intoxicated with certain lusts in your soul. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes that's way more powerful than any, any liquor bottle. Proof be told, I mean, you're not even drunk and you're making bad decisions. You're not even weakened physically or inebriated and you're making worse decisions than you would make if you were drunk. Because of some lust in your soul, you're intoxicated with something. And may I add, someone. Maybe it's someone you're intoxicated with and you need to cut it out. Because God doesn't like it. We're actually going to make it past this, this slide. I could stop here. Although my clock still says only 8.03, so we have like three hours to go. <laughs> California. I was just thinking about this. and Before we close, let's just think about a couple of things. And the problem is that we are born depraved alienated from our Creator. And even though at salvation we are saved from the penalty of sin, we are all still influenced by it. Our flesh is in bondage to it. We noted a while back now with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, we noted this. We also noted this with Peter in Matthew 16:23, with the phrase, Get behind me, Satan. We also noted that God will, for the sake of illustration even, hand over the lost to their sinful natures just to show the nature of sin and how aggressive it is and how depraved we are born. Go to Romans 1.28. And if that thing runs its course, in other words, if the fishing line is let out and you you just let the fish run, it runs away from God. Towards what? Depravity. We saw the you know, the negative and the positive side. We notice that it's not just negative against holiness, it's positive towards depravity. Romans one twenty eight. Romans one twenty and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God did this thing. He gave them over and this is so that they I mean and it's recorded obviously. And it's, they, they become like a walking, living parable. Or not parable, a um, proverb. 
excuse me, a proverb. This is what not to do. This is what happens when you fill in the blank. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. That's that paradidomy up here on the board. And the Greek gave them over to hand over, pledge, hand down, deliver, commit, commend, betray, abandon, to deliver over with a sense of close personal involvement. Okay? If this is what you want, knowing what you know, you know who I am, you know I exist, you know you've been suppressing me, go for it. Because I need a few um, proverbs. Read Romans 9 to 11, the potter and the clay, right? Who's to say I'm not going to use some for dishonor? That's my sovereign decision to make. So go. I need a few proverbs. Go. I'm going to record it too. And I'm going to teach it throughout the years to people that want to learn the truth about me, who are humble, who want to see, you know, what is the end goal? You know, it's the kid with the, the socket again, right? Hey, don't stick your finger in that hole right there. Bad things happen. How bad? Sounds like the garden again, doesn't it? Dying thou shalt die. So what does every kid do? Well, at least in my family. Right? If not a finger, we got a piece of wire or something. Who knows, right? Anything that would be conductive, you know? Oh, is that bad? Well, that's, that stinks. Right? Because that's what we do. We always have to take it to its end. And so God, in perfect wisdom and grace says, you don't have to go to the end. I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you the faculties to be able to see what happens. And when you read the, the, the second half of Romans 1, your soul almost wants to vomit. It's unbelievable. And then you say to yourself, uh-oh, I do some of that. And then he says, exactly. Exactly. This is what sin is. This is how it acts. This is its intention. This is its influence over man. And so he gives us these individuals as parables, living parables. And some of you might be saying, I have some of those in my life. It's a brother or a sister or an uncle or a mother or even a child maybe. And they're just walking proverbs of what not to do against the will of God. And God uses that person in your life, as painful as it may be, to say, you see? Like, you see? You see what happens? I'm trying to deliver you. I'm trying to deliver that person as well. They're ignoring me. You see what happens? And then he turns around and you say, instead of saying, you know, letting you go, oh, yeah, there's such bad people. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's just the amplified version of what's in you. Because I see you making little versions, bad decisions, that look just like the first couple of steps that person took. So who are you to judge? You're going in the same vector as they are. I'm convinced that's why he gives each one of us, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I'm going to put this person in this family, and then this person in this family, and then this one in this family, just so everybody can share the wealth. 
and see and have living examples, Proverbs, within their vicinity that they can ache over and cry over and be in pain over and say, my goodness, what is going on? He says, exactly what's going on in you? Why don't you ask yourself that question instead of throwing stones at your brother, your sister, your uncle, your aunt, your mother, your kid, whatever. Stop throwing stones at them. You're doing the exact same thing. It's just not quite as advanced yet. Who are you to judge? That's what grace looks like. That's what real grace looks like. I know. The results are so ugly, but definitely a pattern we see all around us. Go to verse 29. Being filled. Filled, remember, means controlled. In this case, controlled by sin. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, Evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. There it is again, imagination. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And here's the kicker. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Ooh-wee. That's the advanced stages. When it gets so far where you become proactive in your antagonism towards God, that's Romans 1.32. And some of you are going to spend time with these people on, say, Super Bowl Sunday. Some of you are going to actually fellowship with these morons, these lost souls. And you're not going to think anything of it. You're going to act like nothing's wrong. And they're going to be patting you on the back, just like Holy Scripture said. I didn't say that. That's, that's Holy Scripture. That's not Pastor Ed's conjecture on, you know, misery loves company and therefore they're going to be... No, that's right in Holy Scripture. They give hearty approval to your downfall. That's why you don't run with fools, because you become a ship of fools. Choose your friends wisely. I'd rather live in a cave. Matter of fact, I kind of do. I'd rather live in a cave, though, than fellowship with the average Christian, even. Because the average Christian is despicable. And I'm not judging, I'm not judging anybody, you understand? I say that because I think <laughs> the average Christian that I think of isn't even saved. The average Christian that I think of it's clinging to some watered-down, emaciated gospel that has nothing to do with anything other than a hedged bet, a settling of some kind of earthly account. Oh, I was saved when I was five. No, you weren't. You weren't even old enough to understand what sin is. No, you weren't. Oh, yeah, I said this prayer. Big deal. I did all these things. So... So, you look like Romans 1. I'm not going to say you're not saved. I'm just saying. It don't look good. It don't look good. And that's the, the theme that's been coming. That's why I read that thing from Pink early on at the, at the very beginning of class. There's just a lot of people out there that live lifestyles that are completely 
filled with sin. Romans 1.29, being filled with all unrighteousness. Their entire lifestyles are that way. And then they come along in your life, presumably, I'm hoping, you're all saved, but they come along in your life and they give you hearty approval from jumping in the ship of fools with them and the others. And next thing you know, you start being these things. You start talking like a slanderer. You're arrogant. You're boastful. You start inventing new forms of evil, new ways to, you know, sidestep God's commands. You're full of envy. Your lust is going wild all of a sudden. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's all good. We do it, see? You see the magnitude of this? Do you see this goes right back to the garden? Can't you imagine the serpent still standing upright, eating an apple and going, tastes good to me, nothing's wrong with me. Can't you see that? You know, very attractive creature in your life. I'm eating this apple, no problem. Not affecting me at all. Want some? Sounds like someone just doesn't want your eyes opened. Sounds like a, doesn't it sound like a drug pusher almost? Oh man, your mind will be blown. Shoot up. You get a mind blow. Try this new stuff. It's called Maui Waui Jamaican Bowie. That's like weed, isn't it? I don't know what I'm talking about. Obviously, I have very little experience. You know what I'm saying? Do this thing. It's a mind blow. They don't, see, God's, God's got all these commands. He just doesn't want you to, your eyes opened. That's all. He doesn't want your eyes opened. Options. It's the same thing. I'm good. And I'm going to end with this. I was, Sean and I, he's not here, but he's running today. But we, we were talking about this the other day how media does this game, lifts people up who are doing the most unholy, ungodly things you can possibly imagine, shows their lifestyles, remember lifestyles of the rich and famous and all that stuff, shows them at the height of their prosperity. What they don't, that's, that's if you was a newspaper, that's the headline. Another person makes it huge in their joy in life. What they don't tell you is the very next revision or a couple of months later on page 20 is their obituary. Or on page 20 is how they're all cracked out and blew everything in their life. And their life is, a sh- is shambles. And in, in, in all reality, they're miserable wretches. But you see, when that's on page 20, there's another person that's just rolled out in front on page 1. And your, your attention is always on page 1 because you're too lazy turn the pages. You know how it is. Or too cheap to buy the newspaper. Cheap meaning not enough to give you energy to come to church and learn and read your Bible. Cheap, you know, with your time. With the things that's most valuable to you. You're too cheap to buy the newspaper. You only want what media gives you on the front page. But you don't read about, you don't read about all the obituaries or the disasters that are absolutely, positively going to come upon the sons of disobedience. Either that or God's a liar. It's, it's a facade. It's a facade. That front page is Romans 132. Everybody's applauding. 
Why is everybody applauding Tom Brady? As far as I know, he's not a believer. He's, a, he's one of the biggest idols on the stinking planet. Everybody's in love with him. Why? Because he's good looking, his wife's a supermodel, and he's rich, and he can throw a football. He can't run out of the pocket, but he can throw a football. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Why does everybody idolize this guy? I'm being totally serious. Why is everybody idolizing this guy? It's horrible to me. It's horrible. And everybody's like, yay! Oh, look at how he talks about his children and his wife and his mom who had cancer and all that. Oh, yay! Tom Brady, yay! What about 30 years from now if we're still around and he's in hell? I hope he isn't. Let's say that happens. Where's page 20 now? Nobody cares because it's the new Tom Brady. It's Patrick Mahomes. Right? You know what I'm saying? Who cares? Who cares? That's my point. I don't care. You shouldn't care. I'm serious. Who cares? It's just a rolling thing. It's a big lie. That's all the Spirit's been saying. So I don't know what else to say. It's 8.18. I just didn't want to stop with that one site. I mean, 11.18. It's 8.18 in California. Forgive me. Some of you are all critical now because I talked about Tom Brady. Whoa. It's 11, 18, 37 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And we're going to close. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to gather together in fellowship in your son's good name. Thank you for allowing us to eat well and break bread, the very bread of life, together so that we have sustenance to go out in a world that's just antagonistic to you, Lord. Father, we just ask and pray for your blessings on this morning's message, and as we take these things out to a lost and dying world, we ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.